You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, we'll be starting a new series today. I will uh, be honest with you, we were planning on doing a series in uh, somewhere in the Bible regarding hospitality for the next three weeks. And as I sought the scriptures and tried to work that out, to be straight with you, I had a hard time finding three weeks worth of sermons on hospitality. There's not a lot there. Oftentimes it's added in the mix where it says do a bunch of things, including be hospitable. Um, So uh, a couple weeks ago, as I was praying through, I felt like the Lord leading us to uh, some stories in Luke about sitting at the table with Jesus, which talk about Jesus' hospitality with us. And I worked with uh, some staff, and we worked out which passages we sought the Lord and came to conclusion on which passages for the next four weeks we will be in, including the last one, which will be at the Lord's table as we lead into Easter the week before, where we will be looking at the Last Supper. And this particular one, the beginning one in Luke 7, is one that uh, I hadn't done a lot of study in before. Uh, It's one that I have, I don't believe that I've preached on it. If I have, it's been quite some time. And so I I was doing the prep on it this week. I had to do a little bit of laughter, a little bit of crying, uh, because sometimes as a pastor, there's these moments where you know that you're going to have to get up and preach a sermon. And you know what's going on in some people's hearts, you know what's going on in some people's lives, and it brings you to a place where you just kind of look at the Lord and say, really? That's what you want from me this week? You want me to to talk about these things in this passage? Because I don't know how that's going to be received, or I don't know how that's going to be, how I can do that from my own heart, but nevertheless... That is where I am today. So I appreciate your prayers as we begin together. And I'm going to pray now before I even read the word. And so if you'll join with me in praying, I would greatly appreciate that. Father, you are sovereign. You are the king of the universe. And you hold and sustain all things in your hands. And there's not one moment of our lives that is beyond your scope. Not even one moment of our lives that has not been in some way allowed or ordained by you. So as we look in your word today, I know that there are many in different places in their lives right now, in different moments, but I know that you are going to speak to all of us as you always do. So I pray, Lord, that you bring my heart to a place of hearing your word and accepting it and walking in it. I pray you do that so for our faith family and for those who join us online. And I ask, Lord, that you would give me strength to preach truth, that I would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that you would quiet my lips if I should not say a thing, and that if I should, that you would speak through me. For, Lord, I do not pretend that everything I say would be from you, but I ask you, Lord, today to supernaturally make that so for the sake of your glory, for the building up of this church body, and for my own heart, Lord. Lord, I know that we love you in this room, or we would not be here. Lord, help us to 
to know that love and to feel it and experience it and to trust in you. And Lord, help us even in our unbelief. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. Reminded me pretty quickly how easy it is for us to forget the implications of the gospel, not just for the first time we come to know Jesus, but for every moment of every day of our lives. There is something to be said for the fact that when you come to faith, you are overwhelmed and you might look at it as we talk about youth ministry stuff, jokingly in ministry. We talk about these youth camp highs where students get on this like high moment and they come back on fire for the Lord. And then over time that begins to dwindle a little bit. And that's a picture of our lives in general. When we first come to faith, we're kind of set on fire and everything is ridiculously put into perspective. But then we get back in the, gro- the groove of things, and over time we see it, and a lot of us, most of us, I think, there's this waning, this waxing and waning, this ebbing and this flowing of that in our lives as we walk with the Lord. And I know that many of us have experienced that love and mercy of God and the forgiveness of our sins and in the salvation of our souls, only to struggle with the daily implications of the gospel, the daily implications of it which refer to the mercy and grace that God has exhibited in our own lives. And I will not speak for you today, but I will speak for me, and I must be continually reminded of my need for forgiveness. I must be continually reminded of the great cost for that forgiveness that has been afforded for me in Christ Jesus. And this story is one that the Lord has pierced my heart with that. Luke 7, 36 through 50, let me read it through and I will then read it again as I unpack it as we go through it. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus said, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. You see, both Simon, this Pharisee, and the woman who enters the home are serious seekers of Jesus. 
both come to him to understand who he is and to understand what that means for them in their lives. This is not a story which is often talked about in this way. This is not a story of one person who is seeking salvation and one who is indifferent. This is not a story of one person who is genuine in their desire to know Jesus and another person who does not want to know Jesus. Simon risks great things for bringing Jesus in his home. He could be ostracized and put out by the other Pharisees. His family could chastise him. He could be made fun of by his friends. And that was his livelihood. He was a Pharisee. He risked very much to bring Jesus to a meal in his home. And this is at least some level from him, an invitation into relationship with Jesus. He's asking Jesus to come in his home and eat dinner with him. Both he and this woman are serious in their desire to know Jesus. But in the end, Jesus rebukes Simon and rejects him, and Jesus welcomes the woman. We know that because of the story he tells Simon. Simon sees it coming as the story begins. Look at verse 36 again. One of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So notice this. Because it says a woman of the city who was a sinner, and because of what Simon later on says about her when he talks about it in verse uh, 39, he says that if Jesus was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Most commentators say that this woman most likely was a prostitute. We're not sure about that, but it seems to fit the case. She's a woman of the city. She's one that everybody would know as a sinner, if not a prostitute, at least an adulteress. Most likely a prostitute, especially because she has this alabaster of ointment, this flask of ointment, which was a common thing for prostitutes to have as they would do their thing. They would have that there as kind of a sign of what they did and also to make sure that they smelled beautiful and were alluring to those around them. So we see that here when it says, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, the fact that she took her hair down in front of other people was a big no-no. Socially, that's her saying that she's vulnerable, that she's open, that she might be inviting men to speak with her. That's what you do before you enter into the bedroom. That's what you do only in the confines of your home. It would be very improper to do that in a public place. She seems not to care. She's crying on Jesus' feet. She begins to clean his feet with her hair. Verse 39 says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A little bit of respect there from Simon to Jesus calls him teacher. Verse 41, Jesus' words, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii. That's about a year's and a half worth of pay. A denarii is about a day's salary. And the other had 50, about two months worth of pay. So this debtor had two guys owed him money, one about a year and a half worth of day's wages and another one about two months worth of wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? He asked Simon, and Simon answered, 
The one, I suppose, Simon probably gets it, right? He's trapped into some kind of parable unwittingly. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The first thing I think this passage shows us is that we need to see the need in this story and in our own lives for forgiveness. That's what we see here. This whole thing's about forgiveness. Jesus says it by talking about forgiving a debt. Jesus says it by saying to this woman, your sins are forgiven. At the end, it's even repeated then as this big Christocentric statement by these people that say, who is this who even forgives sin, saying only God can do that, really? And he tells this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The story is about forgiveness. Just what it is. But I think that too often, I forget the need for forgiveness. In my own life, as I look at others, I think the question that should beg here for all of us is, do we see our need for forgiveness? See, this Pharisee is sitting at the table, and he recognizes that usually in stories like this that Jesus is posing that the lender would be a God figure and that the others would be those who were sinners, some that had sinned worse, some that had sinned less, still sinners. And he probably put himself in that position when he sees the juxtaposition going on when Jesus is pointing out this woman and then also pointing out him and talking about this story and asking Simon to give the answer to that story. And Simon rightly looks at himself and sees that he's probably the one with the 50 denarii debt. And this woman, who's a great sinner, probably has the 500 denarii debt. But when you see the severity of your need for forgiveness, it actually changes how you relate to God. We see that here in the story. This woman knows who she is. She comes in. Simon comes in. They both want to know Jesus, but their postures are very different. Simon is speaking to him, trying to ascertain, is this really the Christ? Is this really the guy they're telling is the prophet that's going to come and bring in the eschatological end? Or is he not? This woman's not doing that. She goes right to the feet of Jesus. She lays everything down. She weeps. She cleans his feet. She anoints him. When you see the severity of your need for forgiveness, it changes how you relate to God. When you see the severity of your need for forgiveness, it also changes how you relate to others. You notice she's not seemingly worried about anybody else in the room. She doesn't seem to be aware of anybody else in the room. She's not worried that she's let her hair down to wipe his feet. Simon is very aware of what's going on in the room. He's looking at this woman and saying, this guy must not be a prophet or he would know that sinner's touching him. That'd be a big faux pas too. The fact that she's touching him, a woman, especially one who's such a sinner, that would make him unclean in the Israelite mind. That would make him someone who does not understand the laws even. How can he be a teacher? Simon is very conscious of this woman's great sinfulness, her immorality. He sees what's happening, and his response is then to sit in judgment over her in that moment, and even in his judgment over Jesus. I mean, just right there. Look at it with me. He says, verse 39, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I'm not saying Simon's a bad guy. I'm saying I'm a lot like Simon most of the time. I see people, I look at them, I judge them, 
I hear them, I judge them. But when the Lord brings to my heart the depth and depravity of my sinfulness, it changes my interactions with others and especially with the Lord. This woman, she seems not even be aware of her own immorality or the immorality of those in the room. She's only aware of her need for forgiveness and her Savior. She falls at Jesus' feet, not in judgment of others or even of herself at that time, but in worship of her Savior. Do you see your need for forgiveness this morning? Or like me, are you sometimes often sitting in the judgment seat of others in their hearts and where they are? Instead of seeing the greatness of our own dependence. You see, that's what sin actually is. It's, it's this not depending on the Lord. Not giving him glory for every little thing. Not recognizing that everything we have is from him. As one of the preachers I listened to a lot, especially back in my developing days at seminary, used to often say, Anything we have as talents, anything we have as smarts, anything we have as abilities, we oftentimes pride ourselves on those things, but those things are nothing but gifts to us. They're not ours. They were given by the Lord. They're not ours to hold pride in. They're ours to give glory in. Instead of seeing the greatness of our dependence on God's forgiveness, is it possible that you or I are sitting even in judgment of what God has done or not done in our lives? You ever been there? We don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it, but it often is there. It's so easy for me to lose sight of this truth about my need for forgiveness. How many times do I sit and think about how I've been wronged? How many times do I sit and Forget my total dependence on God's grace for every moment of every day and instead feel as though God hasn't come through for me. Ever been there? Why, Lord? Why have you not vindicated me in this moment? Or why, Lord? I know we know we're not supposed to ask why, but why have you allowed me to be in this situation? Why have you not given me this or that? I've sought you. I've prayed. I've fasted. I've, I've, I've begged this of you. You've talked about it in your scriptures. But then in his steadfast love and in his mercy, at some point, God reminds me of all that he's done for me in Jesus. And it melts my heart towards him. To see that he's already given me everything I need in Jesus. When we see our great need for forgiveness, when we see how dependent we really are on God for everything, every breath, every morsel for sustenance, every movement of our body, every beat of our heart, and when we see how gracious and forgiving our God is toward us, it always, always leads us to the feet of Jesus where we then can pour out all we have to offer to him. This woman, you know what she had to offer? The ointment that made her a better prostitute, if that's what she was. Something that was sullied, something that was wrong, something that was bad. And she says, Lord, it has new purpose at your feet. Everything about my life is yours now. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say. See, today, I believe, is a day for all of us, an invitation for all of us to come to the table of Jesus, to come to the table and be transformed like this woman.
Not only do we need to see our great need for forgiveness every moment of every day, but secondly, from this text, I think it's implied very clearly that we need to see the cost of that forgiveness that God grants us. Do you see it here in the text at all? Do you see the cost of what it's talking about? It's hard to see at first, but it's there. Look at it with me again in verses 41 through 43. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Do you see the cost? Look at it. The only way someone can forgive a debt is for them to eat that debt themselves. If I went to my bank and asked them to take over my mortgage and to let me just have the house, that they'd swallow that debt, let me off the hook. If they did that, that debt isn't erased. That debt is transferred. That debt goes to the bank. They have to absorb that debt. They have to eat that debt. We oftentimes read this story or stories like it, and we don't think too much about the money lender who forgave that debt. We just think that's how God works. He just forgives. He just gets over it. He just lets it go. He just forgives. That's how we should be. He just lets it go. That's not how this works. If there's a debt, somebody has to pay that debt. Somebody has to be the one to pay the debt. It can't just be erased. It has to be transferred. It's always transferred. Thankfully, we have a God who's a lender who doesn't become unjust by just erasing the debt of our sinfulness, but instead, he transfers that debt of sinfulness onto the shoulders of his own son, Jesus, on the cross. And on that cross, Jesus takes on all of our debt. The 500 denarii do not compare. The 50, of course, do not compare. And all of that sin is placed upon the shoulders of Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus bears the weight of that sin to its fullest, drinking down the full wrath of God toward that sin until he drinks it to the dregs and then looks at his father and says, it is finished. It's done. And he gives his spirit up to the father. Pours it all out. He drinks that cup to its last. We have a God who loved us so much that he sent his son to become one of us, who faithfully, willfully came to become one of us, to live the life we cannot live, to die the death we deserve, to be under the wrath that we should endure for all eternity so that we could be reconciled back to God and redeemed and that we could be forgiven and we could be charged to walk in that forgiveness, giving him glory in every moment, knowing that all the moments we don't, he died for that already on the cross. And it is clear that our sins have been blotted out of the book against us because they were written down in the book against Jesus on our behalf if we have been found in Christ. And that every single one has been paid for. Both Simon and this woman come to Jesus in order to see if he really might be the Savior. But only the woman lays it all down and fully submits to Jesus as her Savior. Simon comes intellectually, he's engaging relationally, but he's not submitting to him. He's not giving control. He's interviewing Jesus in a sense. And this woman, though, comes in fully submitted, bowing at the feet of Jesus. Simon doesn't provide water to wash Jesus' feet, which would have been a pretty normal thing, but not everybody did it. Simon doesn't do that. 
but she washes his feet with her tears and wipes them clean with her hair. Look at it again. Look at verse 44. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. That was a customary thing. It doesn't always happen, but it's customary to maybe do that to show your guests some reverence or honor. It says, you, you gave me no kiss, but from, that time, from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. That's another thing. You've been traveling. They give you some oil to put your hair back. You know what it's like walking around in the dusty world, a little dirty, put a little oil in your hair. You don't do that? Did you not anoint my head with oil? But she has anointed my feet with ointment, much more expensive than that kind of oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Be careful here in your reading, by the way. It's easy to look at that word for and to think, well, I know what that means. That means that everything said before it is saying, this is why, because of this, she's forgiven. That's not what this is saying. Look at it again. Let's make sure we're clear. And he said to her, well, sorry, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. This is an evidentiary exegetical moment where he's saying, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Therefore she loved much. It lines up this use of that particular word for four is used that way in other places in Scripture. It's not that she's forgiven because she loved him. It's that she loves him because she's forgiven. Just like... John says in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. He says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So see, Simon doesn't greet him with a kiss on the cheek, but she repeatedly kisses his feet, showing her reverence and adoration for Jesus. Simon doesn't anoint Jesus' head with olive oil, but she takes the anointment perfume that was part of her livelihood and anoints Jesus' feet. Simon isn't willing to submit all control and honor to Jesus, but this woman lays everything she has at the feet of Jesus. And at the end, we see Simon basically is rebuked and rejected for it, but this woman finds salvation at the feet of Jesus. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Both came as sinners in need of saving, but only one gives up everything she has. Her pride, her livelihood, her tears, her glory. She is known, if she's that prostitute, as being one who uses that oil, that ointment, to make her way. She's known as one who has to be clean and attractive. And instead, she's letting her hair down, and she's cleaning his dirty feet with her own hair. She's taking that ointment, and she's breaking it over the feet of Jesus. She's, she's anointing him in that way because that's her Savior. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Simon's trying to figure out if this is the guy to follow. This woman's figured out already this is the man to fall at his feet. She loses her life, turns it over to him. Both came to the table to be with Jesus, but only one leaves transformed. Both sat down with the Savior, but only one leaves saved. What a broken-hearted moment. 
Today is an invitation for all of us here, for all of us watching, to come to the table of Jesus, to come to the table and be transformed. Jesus talks about this type of coming to him. We've heard it a lot recently, but Matthew eleven twenty eight is worth mentioning again. Come to me. He says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You might have started your way with Jesus by remembering the glory of the cross and recognizing you bring nothing to the table. But then maybe you've forgotten that and you've been carrying some weight. And he's saying, come all you who are heavy, burdened, who are tired, and I will give you rest. You notice at the very end here, he says in verse 50, he says the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. If you actually look at the original language here, none of the translations like, translate it this way, but a lot of the commentators talk about it this way. When you look at that original word there in the go in peace part, um, the words, it, the basic form of that preposition is not just go in peace, like on your way, it's to go towards something, to go to something. I wonder, I don't know, I wonder when he says this woman, your faith has saved you, go in toward peace, go into peace, walk in the way towards me, walk in the way of the kingdom. This is the beginning of your peace. Maybe today you don't have peace. You need to come to the table and be transformed. Lay down all your thinking about whether or not this is right or that's right, or whether or not all you're thinking about whether you can figure this out or not figure this out, and just come to the table and get at the feet of Jesus and be transformed. Don't try to carry your way through. Realize that Jesus has carried it all for us already on the cross. And let us rest in him. Come into his peace, his shalom. You know, John 5.39 I'm going to walk through a little bit of John 5, 6, 7 real fast to go along with this. John 5, 39, when it first hit me what was really going on here, it really broke me years ago. Personally, not like broke my heart for someone else, broke me. Jesus is hanging out with the religious leaders. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And we do that, right? We search these scriptures and in them is eternal life. This is the story of Jesus. This is the message of God to us. Some call it his love letter to us. As we, we look at this Bible because this is the message of God to us for our salvation. So yeah, we look for it for that, don't we? It's easy to gloss over and just think, yeah, you Pharisees. No, but that's what we do. This is right. We should do that. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he says, it is they that bear witness about me. And listen to this key word. It says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Some of you in here have never come to Jesus the first time, and it's time to come to Jesus, come to the table, and find life in Christ. Some of you think you have been his, because I know I've been there. I I thought for years I was his. And then later on, God rent my heart and showed me I was not. And today is the day to come to the table and be transformed. And some of us know him and have been walking with him for years. But we so easily get our eyes off of Christ. We so easily are turned back and so easily turned away to look at self, to look to our own alabaster flask of whatever we're putting our hope in to carry us through the day. And he's telling us today, come back to me. Don't refuse to come to me. Come to me. Don't sit across the table and talk to me about what you're doing. Come to me. Don't refuse to come to me. Come to me that you will find life. Because in your death, Before me, in your full submission to me, we find eternal life. 
He says it in John 6.35, he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. She got that because she laid everything down at his feet knowing that everything she needed was in Jesus and he was going to carry her through. Today I stand before you as a man that knows no matter what goes on in my life, no matter whatever time comes, I know Jesus will carry us on. In this faith family, no matter what goes on, Jesus will lead us through. Jesus will lead you in whatever you go through. He will carry you on. If he is your savior, come to his feet at the table and let him be our rest. He will carry us through. I have nothing except Jesus Christ and crucified. Jesus said on the day of the last feast in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Oh, Lord, forgive me. For it is not always that rivers of flowing living water come from my heart. But if we are his, he is pouring it into us. And he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know what that is? It's the rivers of the grace of the gospel. That's what will come out of us to one another to the world around us. That is what will emanate from us. And then in the end, he will come back for us. John was getting this revelation from the Lord in Revelation twenty two twenty at the end. It says, he who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus, surely I am coming soon. What if he showed up today? What if he came today? Would we have that living water? Have you drank of the water that never, ever does anything but satisfy? Have you been refreshed in the glory of the water of the word as it's been poured over you? Have you found your great need every moment for salvation and for being forgiven in Jesus and then gloried at his feet as you wiped his feet with your tears and as you poured out all your things and yourself upon him? Because John's answer to that statement, surely I'm coming soon. He says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. And one day he will. And we'll have the greatest feast we could ever imagine at the table of Jesus. But if we don't come to the table today, that may not be our feast. So I beckon you with me to come to the table and be transformed. Lord, let us not leave your presence together today without recognizing the depth of our need for forgiveness. Let us not leave your presence this morning without realizing the cost of our salvation. For when we see how severe is our sinfulness, and when we see the infinite cost of our salvation, we can then truly see how great it is to have a Savior like your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we are undeserving. There's nothing we have, nothing we think we own, nothing within us that is worthy of Jesus. But Lord, we lay it down before you today. We come before you to your table to feast in the house of Zion. 
We come to meet Jesus, not to figure out if he's the one, not to beckon for him to do this or that, but to fall at his feet in gratitude, to fall at his feet in brokenness. We come to fall at his feet, Lord, because that's the only place we can be when we see who he is and who we are in our great need of your son, Jesus. So Lord, as we listen to a song that's been written for your glory about coming to the table, I pray today that you would beckon our hearts and that we would respond by, by getting ourselves into a posture of worship and adoration at the feet of your son, Jesus. Lord, may we glory in him and never, never even get up from that place. Even as we go about our day, as we go to our jobs, as we go back to our homes, that we would stay in a posture of worship and love and thankfulness and joy and hope because you're going to come back one day, Lord. And you sustain us now, Lord. And you're the place where we find hope and rest, Lord. You are our Jehovah Shalom, our peace. You are our Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And Lord, we need you now. I ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for families.